Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very uh, interesting founder. I mean, he's done this multiple times, building, scaling, financing, exiting, you name it. And I think that today we're going to really enjoy uh, having him on the show and really learning from all the lessons learned that, he, that he's gotten throughout his journey. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Drew Perkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. I'm uh, very happy to be here. It's very exciting. So originally born in New York City and then moved to Pennsylvania, to Lancaster. So how was life growing up? Uh, I had a pretty typical suburban kind of life um, growing up, middle class. Um, it was a great place to grow up. And obviously you were into engineering, mathematics. So, so what got you into that? Um, I've been interested in uh, technology as far as I, uh, as early as I can remember. And, um, you know, even before high school, probably junior high, I started getting into electronics and had, you know, 201 experimenter kit from Radio Shack that got me into that. And then in high school, I had the good fortune of meeting another uh, young man that was into uh, computers. This was 1977, building your own computer at home before even the TRS-80 or around that time. So uh, it was very exciting. Very cool. So anyone in your family was also an entrepreneur because, I mean, you're quite a machine of ideas and, and businesses. So wondering where you got that influence from. My um, mother's family uh, were all uh, entrepreneurs. And uh, although I didn't know them, most of them had died or all of them had died by the time I was uh, probably born or grew up. Um, I guess I had that in my genes. Got it. And then Carnegie Mellon. So you go there and you went to do electrical engineering and, and mathematics, essentially computer science. And you were quite into the Internet, you know, there already, even though it was 1981. Yes, uh, I managed to be in the right place at the right time. And it uh, was very synergistic with what I had been working on in high school and the earliest computers. And then I got involved in the very earliest Internet communications. So tell us about the first business, because your first business came out of this. Um, somewhere around 1987, I had this uh, crazy idea of building an Ethernet switch. And uh, there were two port Ethernet bridges in existence. I'd been working with the very earliest and, and first ones from Digital Equipment uh, Company and, and others, Corporation, 
the companies. And I had the idea of uh, uh, turning into a multi-port, uh, large-scale switches. And I think I was, uh, I hadn't heard of that before. And I think I started the first company to do that. And this was, what was the name of this company? Uh, we called it IntelliKey, but uh, I never got it beyond two people because I uh, knew more about the technology and the, the market than I did about how to start a business at that point in my life. And what was the outcome here? Um, I, I uh, as got frustrated with uh, trying to get the company going and, and get some funding, and I, I kind of threw in the towel on it. So then what was your, your lesson here, Drew? Because obviously the first business, you know, really comes with the biggest painful lessons. Uh, well, I learned a little bit about fortitude. I learned about having the right set of co-founders around me at the very uh, get-go. Uh, it helps to uh, connect with other brilliant people that uh, bring the right mix of skill sets to, to get a company going right from the get-go. So then you happen to join a group of friends. And that was quite a rocket ship. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, there was a group of my friends from Carnegie Mellon classmates and, and office mates and things that had started a company called Four Systems. And it was a complete uh, rocket, uh, rocket ship. Uh, they went on a couple of years before um, I joined them and they got some government funding uh, to get the company going. But then I joined them and one year later, um, we uh, took the company public. Uh, and I spent three more years, four years total, and it was just an amazing experience being with a company that, that grew so darn fast into a multi-billion dollar company. And uh, seeing how that, that grew, I joined as only employee 44 and led uh, kind of led product management. There really was no product management, but I led uh, the software engineering and, and got involved in the hardware engineering, ASIC engineering, and all the elements of building a high-scale sophisticated hardware-based switching platform. And here, obviously, you gain access to, to really the experience and really see that, that it's possible, that it's possible to do the, the full cycle. So, so out of this experience, what would you say that you would highlight it the most out of, you know, perhaps that lesson that you took away with you? Uh, you know, out of that lesson, um, out of that journey, I, I learned how important it was to have a a team with uh, the right mix of skill sets, um, how to I mean, manage the company going public, and then how to uh, manage, uh, frankly, exiting it afterwards, uh, and uh, <laughs> learn a bit about um, uh, how to sell sell over time and, 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 and get a return on it. Absolutely. So, so why California? Obviously, after this experience with four systems, then you decide that it's time to pack up the bags and and moved to California. So why did you make that decision? Well, frankly, I'd wanted to go to Cal to uh, college at Stanford in California. I'd always wanted to go to California, uh, move to California. So, and, and, you know, California with Silicon Valley just seemed uh, the right place. Uh, one of the other lessons I had at Four Systems was it was actually quite difficult to recruit a large team of incredible people to uh, places outside of Silicon Valley, and in that case, Pittsburgh. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to do this next one in Silicon Valley where it's a whole lot easier to raise capital to find the right people, et cetera. And obviously you've, you've talked about team and, and finding the right people and co-founders quite a bit. And I think that here it didn't take you long until you found your co-founders. Is this right? Yeah, I literally uh, moved here and within uh, just a couple of days had secured a co-founder uh, and, and uh, built a partnership that lasted through three companies in more than a decade. So, and, and has lasted for a couple decades since then, actually. 
Wow. So it's uh, very, very important to get the company going right from the get-go uh, on the right, uh, right foot, the right foundation. And this was a Light Terra Networks, is that right? That was that company. It's co-founded that in 98, and we exited in 99 when we sold it uh, for half a billion dollars to Sienna Corporation. Wow. How, how do you do that in, in, in not even two years? Well, it's all about luck, but luck's where opportunity meets preparation. And uh, all the preparation I'd done in the years before uh, even starting the company and then um, getting the right company going at the right time and then the bubble happened and uh, well, the uh, whole internet explosion uh, happened in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. And just being in the right place at the right time with the right stuff. So uh, it's all about luck. <laughs> I, I am right there with you. Uh, but I guess, uh, as you're looking back and, and perhaps, you know, like now in your, in your own journey, I mean, what, what would you say was that, uh, that lesson that you said, I'm, I'm definitely taking this with me for, for whatever I build in the future? Well, throughout all my experiences, as I said, from the get-go, either, you know, either a negative experience or a very positive experience is, uh, again, it's all about the team that you build, starting with your co-founders, but continuing on from there, and um, it's uh, you need to attract the most brilliant people in the world. And if you do that, you can you can uh, take on successfully and and surmount and, and uh, beat the toughest challenges um, and and build the greatest companies, the biggest companies. So what happened? What happened after? What happened next? Because quite a Quite a good outcome eh? in, in literally two years for 550 million. I mean, not, uh, not bad at all. So, um, so tell us about what happened next. Um, I had a one-year non-compete, so we decided to, my co-founder and I decided to uh, try something in a little different space, and we built a, uh, a carrier, a, a fiber-to-the-business carrier called On Fiber, and again, raised a lot of money. The bubble hadn't burst yet. Uh, it was 99, 2000. We were able to raise a whole lot of money uh, to do that. But then uh, we were busy building fiber networks around uh, the country, around the United States. And then the bubble did burst. And then raising the you know, billion plus dollars it took to do that kind of thing uh, became very difficult. So we, uh, we ended up uh, selling that venture uh, to Quest Communications uh, a couple of years later. But instead, we ended up, after our non-compete was up, a year later, we ended up co-founding Infinera and um, took a, a very, very deep tech journey into uh, technology that required building our own fab and building our own semiconductors and, and building photonic integrated circuits, just very, very advanced uh, semiconductor technology. And then uh, Infinera built uh, that semiconductor technology and then all the semiconductors around it, the hardware around that, um, the software around that complete networks and we ended up building a company that uh, that uh, was the leader is still the leader in the optical transport network uh, which is the business of, of putting massive amounts of data uh, today it's tens of terabits per second of data over fiber optic cables around the country or around the city under the oceans things like that and uh, by virtue of uh, taking on an incredibly challenging problem we uh, were able to attract for, for a very, um, in a very large market, we were able to attract massive amounts of capital and with those elements, a challenging problem in the capital to take it on, we were able to attract an incredible set of people, build an incredible team, build an incredible product and bring that to market. And, and uh, when we came to market, we 
immediately uh, um, started uh, building hundred multi hundred million dollar revenue uh, kind of business that allowed us to take that company public in two thousand seven, and today it remains a multi billion dollar public company. And is is it like a, a big of a difference from from being used to perhaps like that flexibility and being able to move so fast to then all of a sudden you're a publicly traded company you have to do all these types of uh, you know quarterly earnings uh, reports and and things like that I mean was it was it a, a big change and and was was that painful? Well, yeah, absolutely. Certainly, as you grow from the first few people to the first few tens to the first couple hundreds of people. Um, you know, the company continues to change and evolve and, and uh, get more process oriented and, and uh, maybe a little bit slower. Uh, as you get across that public boundary, uh, things change again. Um, and uh, as you start building a company with thousands of people, uh, you get very process oriented. And, and uh, you know, the companies, companies evolve and change as, as they need to uh, become more accountable. Um, and uh, Personally, I, I, I prefer, uh, probably prefer the early stages a little bit, um, but uh, in order to build truly large, great companies, you need to go through all those different stages and, and uh, evolution and maturation. So obviously with Infinera, I mean, it took you 10, almost 11 years and, and you know, you, you took the company public and then when touching 11, almost 11 years, then you decide it's time to leave. How did you come, you know, to that conclusion? Well, one of our, actually several of our customers in the cable networking um, space uh, or cable service providers, Time Warner Cable in particular, um, Comcast Charter, this kind of, I mean, they, they were seeking and asking us for a new architecture to replace their cable networking systems that they were buying predominantly from Cisco Systems, uh, who was uh, charging a very large amount of money for what's called DOCSIS technology. Uh, which is the technology used to deliver um, internet over cable and modern cable uh, television services into people's homes uh, and businesses, you know, around the world, but especially in the United States. And so um, they wanted a new architecture that was much cheaper that would allow them to scale uh, much faster um, and uh, get from delivering tens of megabits per second to hundreds of megabits per second to gigabits per second of data communications to people's homes and businesses. So um, we thought that we might be able to, or they thought we might be able to do that through our photonic integrated circuit technology. I took a very close look at that um, problem that they had in the, and came up with a new solution uh, to it, a new architecture. And um, it, was, it was not synergistic enough with Infinera. I gave Infinera uh, the op opportunity as I, I needed to, uh, my fiduciary responsibility to uh, to enter that business and develop that product, but it wasn't directly in line and synergistic enough. So um, Infinera declined to do that, but I decided, hey, I've been doing this Infinera thing for a while. It's time to go start a new company and do something and go take on this new space. So uh, that's what I did and uh, went out and raised more VC funding, raised, you know, recruited some other incredible world-class entrepreneurs as co-founders and Built a team, raised money, built a product, and uh, and that product is is still sold is sold around the world, and uh, eventually that uh, company we sold to Nokia, uh, who unfortunately uh, didn't succeed uh, with the product. Uh, 
uh, they had their own other internal challenges for many reasons and, and, uh, product didn't exactly reach my, uh, aspirations, but, um, as far as gain speed goes and for our investors, employees, it was a successful outcome. And, and, you know, here, one thing that, that, that it's repeating is that you, you've seen the building financing, scaling and exiting many times. And I'm sure that you've learned a thing or two about making deals happen and, and, and doing deals is not easy. I mean, especially when you're doing an acquisition. So, so how, I mean, what, what have you learned about making deals happen? Um, well, again, to, uh, to, to make a deal happen, you need to bring first, uh, you know, a very attractive idea, uh, the bigger, the better. Um, and that idea has to have the uh, promise of you know, significant revenues and, and building a significant company. If you uh, do that, that's going to be attractive to investors. Um, it's also going to be attractive to employees uh, to get the investment. You also have to need to bring the first investment. You need to bring, um, you know, a, a uh, great um, founding team uh, to the to the party, to the story. And, um, you know, with the, the big idea, with the uh, skilled uh, uh, experienced uh, founding team, uh, you're going to get early stage people uh, excited, and and you know then once you get uh, you know that first uh, seed investment and and uh, larger investment, Series A investments or whatever, uh, you can start hiring uh, incredible people, and you end up with a virtuous cycle. Uh, I've been through it quite a few times now with my latest company, Mojo Vision, where you know. You personally put in time, uh, you put in uh, personal dollars, you get a, uh, use those dollars to hire some people, use that to build um, some good proof of concept technology with that uh, mix of, of technology, attractive market people. Uh, you can raise more money. With more money, you can hire more people. With more people, you can build even better uh, technology with better technology. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, more uh, work on what the market looks like and, and the, the, the investment pitch, et cetera. You can then uh, get even more uh, investors involved and, and, and dollars. You, you continue this, this virtuous cycle uh, to uh, build a you know, large, great company. And after GainSpeed, I mean, you were alluding to it with your latest company. I mean, you took a year of sabbatical and then you took a surgery uh, for your eyes, and and that essentially was the segue to to really your latest baby, which is Mojo Vision. So, so what are you guys doing at Mojo Vision, and and how did this happen? So, Mojo Vision began for me. Um, as you said, I got cataracts in my eyes and intra uh, lenses put in my eyes through cataract surgery, and uh, gave me bionic vision, but not the six million dollar man uh, kind of bionic vision from from the nineteen seventies TV show, and I really wanted that. So. Um, uh, it, uh, Mojo Vision sprang from that desire to truly help myself, uh, but other people with vision issues, uh, and, and ocular health issues and, and build, you know, better, uh, modern, uh, kind of bionic vision technology. But, uh, of course I was also uh, quite well aware that, uh, since the seventies, the, the, uh, concept of augmented reality has emerged and, you know, all of computing. Uh, and uh, the idea of wearable technology and, and things like that. And I, I realized that it would be possible to both help people with vision issues with, you know, incredible 
advanced technology while at the same time uh, advancing this, the state of computing and, and the way technology uh, is interfaced with the human body and man's relationship with, with technology overall. So the vision roof just from uh, this bionic vision issue, uh, vision, vision literally, to a vision of um, truly uh, augmenting human capabilities and, and um, our relationship with technology and be able to use uh, uh, technology interface to the cloud and, and all these things and have be able to know um, anything and everything and, uh, exactly when you want it and be able to see uh, the world through um, new eyes where you could see information and, and truly interface us to uh, computing in a new intuitive and, and much more powerful way than today's mobile technology or desktop computing technology. So, you know, I, I sort of began with that vision of Mojo and along the way, you know, thought about, of course, glasses, but what I really wanted to do was have an even tighter integration of that. And I realized that the best way to interface us uh, with technology and provide an invisible computing and experience that I wanted was through contact lens platform. <coughs> uh, well, I was also well aware that all of the big tech companies were trying to develop augmented reality uh, in, a, in a glasses form. And, and there were other um, startups, many other startups trying to develop augmented reality glasses. And one of them had raised Magic Leap had raised uh, two and a half billion dollars um, already. And uh, I realized that it even better that the next generation once glasses, anyone got glasses and other people would want contact lenses. And that was a much tighter integration uh, even than, than glasses with the human body. So um, I thought to myself, you know, why wouldn't it be possible to, to put augmented reality in contact lenses? And uh, I've always been a believer that, that anything that man can conceive, man can build unless it violates the laws of physics. And I didn't see how that would violate the laws of physics. And it was just a matter of bringing the right uh, set of people and skill set and resources to the problem. And so um, that was pretty much uh, the, the, the vision I had for Mojo Vision. And that's what Mojo Vision has become. We've now uh, turned science, that science fiction into science reality. And we build uh, true augmented reality contact lenses that, that uh, can help people with low vision conditions and, and other conditions in the future um, see better, but also give us that instant access to information in an invisible fashion that uh, is going to be socially acceptable, unlike the augmented reality glasses that, that everyone from Microsoft to Google to Facebook to Samsung to everyone else is, is uh, Apple is working on. And we think we have a more powerful, more advanced solution that is in the end going to be um, more attractive to a large set of people uh, than, than even uh, the glasses-based solution that, that all the large tech companies are spent, each spending billions of dollars on. And how much capital have you guys raised today, Drew? So we've gone around this virtuous cycle um, quite a few times now, um, and we've raised about $160 million uh, to date. And why did you choose the investors that, that you chose for this for this venture? Uh, well, um, I, I from experience, I, I went to the early stage 
um, to a couple of early stage investors that I'd worked with in the past uh, first. And uh, my, one of my very first stops was at NEA to talk with Greg Papadopoulos. And Greg was the CTO of Sun Microsystems, which of course was one of the um, leaders in, in computing technology from the 80s and 90s and, and 2000s. <coughs> and um, Greg was uh, the CTO of that, that organization and had an incredible uh, background and experience and, and history himself before that. So he was very excited about what we were, what I was conceiving of, but uh, very interesting. I didn't uh, fully expect that, but my first question to him was, do you know anyone else doing this? And actually he did. So uh, he was aware of a guy named Michael Deering, who um, he said was one of his um, colleagues at Sun Microsystems. He'd been the chief architect of 3D graphics at Sun Microsystems for 14 years and effectively one of the co-inventors of the GPU and, and Java 3D and, and uh, a number of other things at, at, at Sun. And uh, so I said, hey, Greg, why don't you get uh, Michael over here and let's talk to him and see what he's been up to. And uh, when, we, when we did, we, we got together with him. We discovered that Michael had started working on this project in 2004. For me, this is 2015 at that point. So Michael had already been working on it for 11 years. And Michael is a uh, just absolute uh, genius um, and, uh, you, you know, a genius working on, the, on this problem for 11 years had already figured out many of the key, had already had many of the key insights and figured out key um, solutions to difficult problems and how to get this uh, technology working. So it was pretty clear to me that um, here I had the idea of, uh, of doing this. I had the ability to raise capital and, and recruit a team. Michael had the uh, technology underpinnings of how to solve the problem and, and build it. It was sort of a marriage uh, made in heaven. And um, uh, at that same time, I was also um, in discussions work with and working on a, another project with an EIR, an entrepreneur in residence at the NEA, uh, Mike Weimer. And so I invited Mike Weimer to join the discussion and and Mike was very excited about the idea and the, uh, the concept, the potential of this. So he joined us and, and together the, the three of us, Michael and Mike and I, dug into the uh, solution that Michael and the technology that Michael had come up with. And within a couple of months, Mike and I had validated what Michael was, was saying and claiming. And we decided that, uh, okay, it was time to really kick this thing, kick this uh, effort into, into a higher gear. I, put a quarter million dollars of my own money into it to get the company uh, some working capital to get going. We built a real business plan, first generation. Uh, with that, Greg uh, was excited enough about uh, having helped get us together and, and the idea. And he brought NEA in the picture and, and uh, they threw three quarters of a million dollars in. I put another half million dollars into match and, and the company was up and going. And uh, from there we raised uh, another million and a half dollars in additional seed capital. So, and we had three. With three, we started to hire brilliant, world-class um, fellow engineers, and uh, in a number of different skill sets, and and uh, uh, a uh, optometrist, vision scientist uh, to boot that knew a lot about contact lenses and, and this technology. And the company was up and going. Got it. And they, I mean, obviously now you know that that all adds up, and it seems that. 
the people that you were getting on board was definitely because they had something something of value to add. So essentially being active and a strategic people really to, to provide value. So one question, Drew, here that I want to ask you that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, taking a look back at your extensive entrepreneurial journey, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and, and perhaps being able to have that ear of, of that younger Drew, you know, that younger Drew that perhaps, you know, would be willing to listen, right? Because obviously our younger selves don't listen. But let's say this younger Drew was, was actually willing to listen. That younger Drew in, in Carnegie Mellon, you know, what would be that one piece of advice that you would give to, the, to that younger Drew uh, before launching a business and why knowing what you know now? As I said, my learnings from my first um, you know, failure was, was first that you need to bring the right founding team uh, to bear right from the get-go. Um, you need to you know, have the fortitude when things get a little tough uh, to, to stick things out. Um, and uh, you need to go through the steps of, of building the right team, building the right plan, talking to the right investors. Uh, of course, um, those investor relationships are, are also key. So uh, when I first started out, I didn't have any of those. Today, I have thousands, probably. Um, I, I know such an uh, uh, enormous set of, the, of investors around the world. It makes it a whole lot easier. And, and uh, that's not advice I could have given my younger uh, person, but I guess I would have advised my younger self to go find, uh, find a co-founder, perhaps, um, that did have those relationships, someone with more experience that could, could bring that to bear. So I, I know it's I a easier said than done kind of thing for a young person starting out at the beginning of their career and entrepreneurial career. So it's certainly easier for someone who's further in their career when they, if they take the entrepreneurial jump in the, in a later stage of life. Absolutely. So, uh, so Drew, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, just look me up on LinkedIn, connect to me, uh, send me a message that way. Um, they can also just email me drew.perkins at mojo.vision. Uh, that's very easy. Uh, one or the other. Amazing. Well, Drew, thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today. Well, thank you, Alejandro. It's been a pleasure. Um, I'm looking uh, forward to, uh, to hearing the net result. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.